Good evening and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Chainergy Coffee Company podcast. In this episode, uh, I would like to have uh, a chat with you and to share some thoughts on how I entered the coffee business, why I decided to enter the coffee business, and to share a few principles that although in this venture were not successful, I think are good principles to read a little bit a business model and to understand how to set up a physical business. So the first point about why coffee, two reasons. The first was that uh, I wanted to try to get out of the corporate world. That's a very common topic. There is hundreds and hundreds of blogs and pages and people that want to sell you this way to freedom from the corporate rat race. And most of them are honestly idiocy. It's just ways to sell you their own coaching or business courses. Now, a good rule of thumb is that if you see more people selling business courses than people doing the actual business, probably the actual business is not very good. I'm thinking dropshipping mostly. I mean, that was all the rage a few years ago when I started my coffee ideas. And uh, I came to the conclusion that more people make money out of selling how to make money online than people that really make money online. So um, I was trying to get out of the corporate rat race and coffee came as a quite, quite an obvious choice for two reasons. The first because most of my career has been in commodities. I thought that coffee required essentially lower level of capital. And plus, <clears throat> coffee has been a constant presence of my life ever since I was a young kid. I think I started drinking coffee probably before my teens, which is not really advisable from a health standpoint. But my memories, as long as I can remember, entail the smell of an Italian coffee pot, the famous Bialetti, the mocha, uh, brewing in the morning, because my mom was an avid consumer of coffee, and so... Uh, have been the same. I mean, my day always starts with the with the mocha. The mocha <coughs> is an interesting story because it was designed as a simple way to brew coffee at home, to use coffee mix that were not very rich, not very costly. In fact, uh, um, the traditional coffee mix, uh, like type of coffee that you mix. In the Italian coffee mocha is 15 to 20% robusta. Now, <clears throat> probably most people know that the two main varieties of coffee that are being consumed as drinks are Arabica and Robusta, the Arabica being the high quality, the Robusta being the high caffeine, lower quality. There is some truth to that, uh, meaning that Arabica varieties, because there is many kind of Arabicas, are generally better tasting, are generally lighter, and are generally more expensive. Whereas Robusta has a much higher caffeine content, they're usually roasted in a darker way, and they taste essentially like burnt rubber. That's the smell that they have, and they usually don't don't taste very well. They're used mostly to produce the lower end of the coffee industry, which is instant coffee. Nescafe, if you prefer. Nescafe is actually not even that bad. Uh, the reality, though, is that uh, what is a good coffee? The answer is always it depends. A good coffee is usually a good coffee mix. 
the coffee that you buy in a supermarket is never very good. However, uh, again, depends what kind of coffee you're brewing. Uh, in the Italian way of brewing coffee, actually, <clears throat> having a 100% Arabica is rarely a plus. Can be a smoother tasting, but then it lacks the kick, which is typical of the Italian coffee. And uh, it lacks also the, the body, the strength. So for a good pot of uh, mocha, for a good bialetti, you actually need a bit of robusta. My favorite is the Lavazza uh, Gold. You don't find it everywhere, you find it all over Europe. I tried to brew in the Italian coffee machine quite a number of different uh, single source Arabicas and most of the time the results have been not very good because it burns. It essentially gets overcooked if you want in the pot and the taste is always bad, just bad. Why? A bit because <clears throat> the way that is ground is different if you're doing filter coffee versus the Italian coffee. And second, because this lighter roasted, lighter taste coffee, if brewed at high pressure like it happens in the Italian coffee pot, the results are far from ideal. So, this is a little bit of background. Um, how did I get into the coffee exporting business? As I probably said a few times, I come from the oil business. And the oil business is a business of volumes. It's a very low margin business. But it's more than anything a business of logistics. Bringing the product to market. Strategically placing your infrastructure in a way that, you mean, that minimizes the cost of distributing. Why? Because the margins, as I said, are low. Most of what you pay when you go to the gas station is not the cost of product, but it's taxes. And in Europe, taxes on gasoline can vary from half or to two-thirds of what you pay when you fill up your tank. It's a, a real commodity, because at the end of the day, gasoline is gasoline. It's not true necessarily when we talk about crudes, because crudes are different and different refineries use different kinds of crudes. However, in general, what matters is really the distribution. Like, for example, where do I place my tank farm to cover a certain area? Like, historically, for example, a lot of the refining capacity in Italy has been installed in Sicily. Why? Not because Sicily is the biggest market, not because Sicily has a huge industrial base that requires a lot of refined products, it's because Sicily is in the middle of the Mediterranean. So it was the obvious stop for oil tankers coming from the Middle East. A product would have been then refined in Sicily and smaller ships would have done the cabotage along the coast to distribute the products along the peninsula. Same way, <clears throat> the biggest refining area in northern and northwestern Europe is the so-called Dara, Antwerp, Amsterdam, Rotterdam. Why? Because from that area, essentially, the economic heart of Europe can be supplied through the Rhine or through rail. So it's kind of obvious to bring oil in that area via ship, which is the cheapest way to bring it, and then distribute it either via river, the Rhine, or via a truck, via railway. 
So, <coughs> by applying this logic, I started to look at the market where I wanted to um, distribute my wares. The markets, for a number of reasons, I identified the markets in the, in the Nordics. But my idea was actually to expand it then more in Central Europe once uh, I would have reached a certain scale. So the first thing to bear in mind is that logistics needs to be approached uh, thinking of uh, essentially two sides. First, the cost of uh, real estate. How much does it cost to have a warehouse? My first warehouse was in Latvia, because in Latvia for the cost that here would allow me to have maybe a small apartment, I could rent a sizable warehouse very close to court. If I would have to distribute coffee in Central Europe, I would probably choose places like Slovenia, Southern Germany maybe, but most likely Slovenia or Czech Republic. So places that are well connected both via rail and via road, but where the cost of real estate is not why, and where the cost of uh, labor is not why, because we're still talking about um, something which is handling, packaging, uh, that is quite labor-intensive. If you're not Amazon and you cannot really um, leverage the scale, you better be very careful about what you will say your logistics. First, to make sure that you can be <clears throat> in your market reasonably fast. Second, because most of the times, uh, especially B2B business, are not going to have these uh, magnificent margins. I mean, in fashion, my last experience was in fashion, margins are well in excess of 50%. But when we talk about coffee, 5, 6, 7% which <clears throat> brings us back to the first major problem with low margins becomes a volume business. And now the thing is, my plan originally was to provide roasteries, so only B2B, no consumer goods, because consumer channel requires first roasting, and second requires investment in marketing. Essentially, even when you buy coffee, most that you pay is marketing. Nespresso is so successful because Nestlé is extremely good at marketing. The quality of the product is actually abysmal, at least in my view. I mean, Nespresso capsule comes in 300 different tastes, but they all taste the same. And probably there is a logic behind it. My idea was that I wanted to serve that market that is not covered by this big producer. Now, the coffee <coughs> business in Europe, but in general in the, in the developed world, because in the developing world, coffee is still pretty much luxury. In Europe, is concentrated probably by two, three companies. Even if we stop at the B2B level, there are a number of players that you probably don't know if you're not in the industry. I'm thinking about Sugafina and Ecom Agroindustrial here in Switzerland. These are some of the biggest purveyors of coffee beans, of green beans, and of cocoa. And then there are kind of monopsonists like Nestle itself, like Jacobs, Lavazza, these 
big roasters that buy a substantial part of the market. And where I saw <clears throat> a possible point of entry was in the fact that to supply these uh, uh, big consumers, uh, farms in Central America are struggling. In fact, <clears throat> in the last few years, there has been a runaway effect in which Brazil and Vietnam, which are the only real industrial producer where coffee production is still is starting to get seriously mechanized. These <clears throat> essentially provide most of the bulk of the commoditized coffee to these big acquirers. And I thought, okay, there are smaller farms, high quality. I had developed a network of contact that I still have in Central America through my time at Puma Energy. Puma Energy is a downstream, midstream, downstream full retailer, very active in Central America and in Africa. And during my travels as an internal auditor for Puma Energy, I developed a number of contacts in good coffee-producing regions, mostly Nicaragua, Guatemala, Salvador, Colombia. So I thought essentially to buy directly from, from these contacts <clears throat> and then sell directly to roasteries. Why I thought so? Because if you try to consume the coffee in a roastery, like I'm talking about a serious roastery, it's nothing like the stuff that you buy at home because coffee to be good has to be consumed maybe within a week of the time that it's roasted. No matter the quality, no matter the variety. It's usually a mix of different varieties. It's very difficult to have a single source. It's probably not even very clever to have a single source because then the taste is going might be peculiar, it might not be for every taste. And at the end of the day, again, the biggest issue when your margins are five, six percent is to provide the volumes that are big enough. I mean, to etch a living out of a five percent margin business, it's about volumes. And here came a little bit my second mistake. So when you evaluate your business, you need to understand something. Working capital might kill you. What is working capital? It's the amount of money that you tie in your inventory and in your receivables. Because most likely, especially if you're a small business, you cannot dictate your conditions. You're going to <clears throat> compete, not necessarily only on price, but for sure you're going to compete on credit that you can stand, on quality, of course, that's kind of a no-brainer, services. But mostly, you are going to have a very hard time finding financing for your business ventures. Banks don't like to finance small businesses. Hence, at least in the beginning, you will have to finance it through your own means. Which means that a substantial part of the cash that is at your disposal is going to be tied in inventory. Now, the good thing of a product like coffee is that it has a very long shelf life, as long as it's not roasted. So you're not going to lose much in terms of your inventory. However, you're still going to consider the cost of immobilizing your cash and the cost of storage. <clears throat> so, again, we go back to the most important point of any business decision, logistics. Where do you place your distribution center? Nowadays, there are companies that do this for you. You can outsource essentially your, your distribution value chain 
there are companies like Tigers in the Netherlands, like uh, in Belgium. There is a, a number of very good companies in general in the area region. So again, Rotterdam Port, there are a number of companies that can do that for you. But that means that your 5% margin might, might be even further reduced by the fact that you are going to have to pay the, your share to the to the distribution company. So in general, the more you do in-house, the better your margin is going to be. However, that also means that the biggest is going, bigger is going to be your risk. So placing your <clears throat> distribution center close enough to your market, but at lowest possible cost is something to which you might want to give a lot of consideration. Even before so though, the, the major point is to find the, the market you want to cover. So again, if you're trying to enter a market like the coffee, like chocolate or like anyway, <clears throat> any food market, uh, you're going to compete against very big guys, which is not necessarily bad because big guys are also slow. Uh, for example, Starbucks, which is another huge purchaser of coffee, has such a strict requirement for its suppliers that a lot of farms are not able to supply Starbucks. Hence, you might be able to snap still very good quality or volumes that are more in line with your financial firepower for a good price. And that might make you put you at an advantage compared to these huge companies. The problem is to evaluate the market that this niche really has, because again, margins are still going to be low and you will need to, to sell a lot of tons of coffee in order to etch a living. Another point is, whenever you work in a, in a business where the prices are not set in stone, like coffee, the same applies to oil, but logic is the same, you will need to understand how to protect your margin against fluctuations because um, it can happen that you don't know the price at which you're buying so let's say you are going to buy five tons six tons ten tons of coffee at the, at the price that is the average of the listing on the london mercantile exchange plus a certain premium if it's a good quality coffee in a certain time range, let's say in the month of September. However, most of my clients didn't like to have variable price. When I started the tour of roasteries in the Nordics, they were very keen on having a fixed price like to say like, would we want to buy, we want to know <clears throat> how much we pay because our consumers, even though they're not so price sensitive because we're talking about um, let's say gourmet coffee, so something that is not uh, cheap, uh, still not willing to pay one week 20 euros for a bag of coffee and the next week 45. So they like to have a certain reliability in the price that they can sell. Now, <clears throat> how can you uh, ensure your price? Uh, normally it's done through derivatives. I mean, a derivative is a fairly simple instrument under which you essentially buy in the future a certain quantity of, uh, of uh, a good 
the problem is that at least for coffee in my case the derivatives that are on the market refer to a certain variety and my varieties were a little bit different so that meant that often <clears throat> there wasn't the correlation that I needed to hedge my, my bets or and even more the size of the derivatives are not in the in the realm of possibility for someone who is importing relatively modest quantities. I mean, the basic contract, as far as I remember, was about 17 tons, 16, 17 tons, 37,000 pounds a pound is about half a kilo. So that's quite a lot of coffee. Moreover, the market can be frozen, can be liquid. I mean, uh, derivatives are not always liquid. So, managing price risk for a small business uh, very often entails a little bit of betting and it entails uh, being fast. Fast in buying, fast in selling, fast to market. Again, the decision of logistics is what can make or break your business. In my case, for example, I had the issue that uh, although um, the cost of logistics from Latvia to Finland, Sweden, Denmark is actually very low because it's essentially seaborne in the Baltic, the timing was slightly long. I mean, not to Finland, but to Sweden and Denmark, actually, it was quite long. So in the end, I had to forego a few opportunities because I could not essentially bring the product fast enough. Actually, it would have been faster to import in a region like Rotterdam and then ship it via truck to Denmark. But then again, <clears throat> the cost of uh, tracking is uh, a few orders of magnitude higher than the cost of, uh, of uh, um, seaborne transport. And uh, when you're small, uh, you're going to have to be part of combined shipments. Um, so you will need uh, a good freight forwarders and freight for good freight forwarders are usually not many um, now was it a doomed idea from the beginning probably probably it was a doomed idea from the beginning <clears throat> however i still think that the analysis behind it was sound was sound in its methodology so First, I approached a market that I know, which is coffee. Second, I approached a market that I like. In the product, I could talk for probably for hours about the different type of coffee, where does good coffee come from, where it's possible to source, and at which price the best beans how you do a proper mix depending on what is your end result. I mean, for an Italian end result, as I said, it's probably 15% Robusta, and even the kind of Robusta that you buy, not all the Robustas are made equal. And for Arabica, not all the Arabica are made equal. <coughs> According to the World Atlas of Coffee, which is a book that I actually started reading when I first got into this idea, uh, there are quite a number of varietals and variety. For example, Barbon, typically. Barbon is uh, 
is a kind of uh, variety that comes from the Ile de la Réunion, so French territory, which has a very peculiar taste, and uh, it's just one of the <coughs> number of different varieties that are that are uh, listed in the World Coffee Atlas, uh, even though actually of all uh, the varieties that are listed, only two probably represent 80% of the market, which means again that there is, in theory at least, the ability to um, develop <coughs> that part of the market which is not occupied by the, by the big guys. Now, the problem that I see in uh, um, looking at a market that, uh, that I like too much, it was that I am a little bit of a coffee snob. And whereas I am a little bit of a coffee snob and I wouldn't be seen dead consuming uh, an espresso capsule or a lavazza capsule or whatever carry capsule you might want to to name, uh, most people don't think like that. Most To most people, the taste of coffee is probably always the same, and they like the idea of, uh, uh, of uh, convenience. And convenience nowadays is everything, unfortunately. Unfortunately for our world, and unfortunately for the beauty of uh, diversity that can be in a product. I mean, at the end of the day, these capsules are all quite standard, in a way, being an industrialized product, they need to have a <coughs> consistent quality. And, uh, <coughs> and inevitably, that leads to a certain uh, lack of diversity. And it's also unfortunate because from an environmental standpoint, whatever these companies are telling you, they're an absolute disaster. They're an absolute disaster in terms of landfill, in terms of uh, use of water, in terms of use of metals. I mean, at the end of the day, the humble uh, um, Italian coffee machine is a much more environmental-friendly proposition than any capsule because essentially once you wash the machine, you reuse it. So you just use the water that you need to brew your two cups of coffee, and that's it. Whereas with the, it goes without saying that with capsule you have the electricity, which is not always produced via renewables. You have the water, you have the water used to put together the capsule itself. You have the metal around the capsule, or the plastic. Choose your environmental ill if you want, so <clears throat> at the end of the day it's a very harmful proposition to the environment. However, it's convenient and that's what people are looking after. It's convenient conveniency, it's uh, availability, it's consistency, because the other thing with the single source or with variety coffee, with the specialty coffee is that uh, it's not always consistent, so the same farm can give a batch which is exceptional and a batch that is average to maybe even poor. Why? Because these are plants. And plants, uh, they change what they produce depending on the sun, depending on the humidity, depending on the climate in general. <clears throat> and with climate change, we're seeing a lot of disruptions, both in terms of parasites that are developing and in terms of years in which the... Um, 
harvests are just not very good. They can be too big, they can be too, too short, or sometimes they are, the acidity can be too high. So there are all kinds of reasons why the consistency in this kind of uh, higher margin niche products <coughs> are not there. However, uh, this makes also uh, the market attractive to someone who wants to get into the workings of the, of the thing. Another point to consider is that um, when there is such a concentration of buyers, probably there is a huge pressure on both prices and on regulation because big business love big government. I mean, that's something that I learned the hard way <coughs> uh, in the European Union, but that's true in the United States. Uh, rules are made for big businesses. Uh, the, that was actually my first reasoning when I decided to eventually not go to the consumer business, just think about the level of details you need for packaging, which are essentially pocket change for a company, for a big industrial company, they, are, they might kill my business just to package, to produce the packaging according to laws and regulation. And I'm not talking about health and safety, because those regulations are actually uh, sacrosanct, they're good, it's good that they're there, because you don't want to poison your consumer, and I don't believe the, the mantra of the free market fundamentalist that a business does not have uh, an incentive to, uh, not to poison, to poison its consumer, hence would take the highest standard by default. That's not true. I mean, as a business, you're always conscious of cost, and if you can cut corner of cost, probably, at a certain stage, you will. <clears throat> so, giving a certain level of regulation to protect the consumer is a good idea. However, there is an optimum level that to me has been far uh, overtaken, to the point that it becomes red tape, red tape that it's not good for small businesses because it, uh, it impedes the growth and it's good for big business because that allows them to preserve their dominance position. Um, another idea that I had when I started the chain energy coffee company was essentially to provide um, comfort food. The idea was to enlarge after coffee, cocoa and a few other products, depending also on the availability and on the legal status. Um, initially, I, I thought about calling the company, the Chainergy Coffee Company, a passion for alkaloids. Because essentially, caffeine is an alkaloid. Alkaloids are from be found in, uh, in cocoa, they're to be found in a few other um, substances. And, and that's something that always attracted me. I'm, I've been a consumer of legal alkaloids my entire life, fortunately and unfortunately. And I thought that since <clears throat> historically there is a certain fidelization of customers towards what, what they like, um, witness myself and my constant use of the Italian coffee machine and of the Lavazza blend, um, I thought it was a good idea to build a sustainable business. 
the idea behind the business was also to build a sustainable business, not sustainable only for me, but also sustainable for my suppliers, because by traveling to these places in Nicaragua and in Guatemala, I started to see in the early 2010s farms struggling. They were getting underpaid very often. They were selling under cost just not to leave their plantation. Plantations are actually being abandoned now because the cost of coffee has been so obscenely low and obviously big buyer can command discounts that farmers, especially small farmers, cannot refuse. In Cocoa there is a similar market structure because there is one, essentially one big <coughs> acquirer which is a Swiss company called Berry Gallebut which probably acquires over one third of the of the coffee of the cocoa beans around the world. Barry Gallebut is a very ethical business. I mean I don't want to diss Barry Gallebut here. In coffee I think the situation is much worse. However, of course being so big <coughs> That allows Barry Gallebut to uh, require pricing that is favorable to it. And so I also thought that it was possible to find uh, um, a niche of uh, chocolate producer that might be willing to buy high quality cocoa beans at better prices. And I could probably recognize a higher price to the farmers. In, uh, in producing countries because by keeping my overheads low. However, I never got around to develop the cocoa part of the business because already the coffee was honestly quite struggling. Um, again, we're talking principles here. Um, before starting to look at the market, you need to understand how big it is. If uh, you can't uh, witness a market that is big enough for you to enter it and taking a small slice and still being a valuable business, probably that's not a market you should enter. I mean, even uh, without going in very accurate market research, it's probably possible just with the information that is available online for free to understand if the market idea I'm talking obviously about existing products I mean startups and new products have very different very different uh, consideration to be made even though um, consideration to be made are always the same so even if you have a new product it's unlikely that it's a product that does something that was never done before so it's going probably to have some form of competition in existing or established businesses. So you need to be able to understand <clears throat> if the size of the market and the substitution effect allows you to scale the business in a way that becomes sustainable. The difficulties in business is not to make money, it's to make enough money to make it worthwhile. Because at the end of the day, um, money can be earned in many ways the easiest way to earn money is probably to work and it's the easiest by far that's why most people work that's why the world is not full of entrepreneurs unless we are in areas like in some developing countries where entrepreneurship is only, probably the only way in that case <clears throat> probably we don't even call them entrepreneurs so we just call them tradesmen or 
or shopkeepers, but they are essential entrepreneurs because at the end of the day, the logic is always the same. Buy something and trying to sell it for a better price than what you bought for, bought it or produce it for. So um, before entering any market, it's uh, absolutely crucial to do well your research. How to find the market to me is the question that really I struggle to answer. I read a number of books, there is always find a niche and find a market and, but how do you find the market? Now, uh, by applying myself uh, in the idea to find the market, my best uh, suggestion is to start to something that you know. In my case, I started first looking at bicycles, then bicycle components, then high quality bicycle components. And I concluded that the market wasn't there. The market wasn't there because too many operators, not many suppliers, shitty margins, logistical nightmare, huge inventory. So I wasn't there. Coffee, uh, I started the first to buy a few bags of coffee during my trips to Nicaragua and Guatemala. Nicaragua is actually the country where I met my actual wife. I love Nicaragua and I suggest everyone who has the possibility to visit Nicaragua, to visit Guatemala, they are absolutely gorgeous countries. So first start to buy coffee and experiment what will go into the filter coffee, what will go into the Italian coffee machine. At the moment I probably use two kinds of coffee brewing, which I think are the most practical and environmental friendly. One is the French press uh, for uh, let's say filter coffee and the other is uh, the Italian coffee pot, which I need, I just need it every morning to, to, to function, <laughs> no more, no less. Um, um, this way, I mean, by using a, a product that you probably use yourself, uh, um, you're able essentially to find publications, to find information and to find a way to understand if there is a market where you can enter or not. And then the second point is on the logistics. I mean, logistics win war, logistics make or kill businesses. Uh, really, it's uh, it's all about location, really. And it's not only in terms of uh, where your clients are, but which is <coughs> the chain under which the product gets from the first stage of work to the last stage, which is the consumer. In my case, I've chosen uh, roasteries, and I've chosen roasteries because in the Nordics uh, there has been a booming of roasteries. I mean, roasting coffee is actually extremely simple as a process. Uh, good roasters, of course, requires uh, knowledge and uh, equipment, but essentially coffee can be roasted in a pan, in a frying pan, like popcorn, or can be roasted in a popcorn machine. Actually, one of my favorite roasteries, which is the Gaffa Roaster in Helsinki, started with the popcorn machine. And roasteries are not necessarily to be found where the clients are. Like here in Switzerland, I know a few very good roasteries. One is in Zermatt, which is a ski resort. Zermatt roastery is not very big, but they do some very good quality coffee. They were never my clients, so unfortunately I never approached them because I never sold any coffee here in Switzerland. Um, 
a good way to start is to look at three publications. So, for example, in Switzerland there is the Coffee Trading Association, which brings together most of the biggest coffee intermediaries in uh, in Europe, actually, because uh, a lot of the coffee that is consumed in Europe is straight to, to Geneva. And actually, that's how I also started to know the market. Find a few books. I don't think books can be a substitute for practice, but books can give you uh, the, the lexicon, because at the end of the day, once you're going to buy or sell or try to sell your words, there is always a lexicon in, in a business, and it's a lexicon that is important to learn. <coughs> and then... Uh, Last advice for the evening, again, this episode wanted to be only a start of the story and how I got there and what kind of teaching I can uh, take home from this co- from this business venture is uh, have a very deep respect for money. Uh, money is uh, probably is going to be a scarce resource. It's not easy to find the uh, Financiers and especially investors, and especially it's not easy in Europe, and it's not easy when you're not in a sexy business. And most businesses are not sexy because here everything is about you know the new social network, the new app that disrupts whatever. But actually, most of the business <coughs> that make the world go round and can give you a nice uh, living are businesses like cleaning, coffee. Mm food in general so for these businesses you will need to start small and scale and banks don't like small businesses so track every cent that you spend and track every cent that you uh, receive and when in doubt don't spend that's my advice Ask yourself always two, three times if you really need that expenditure and if you don't need it. Like it would be nice to spend, for example, like when I started to think about the coffee company, I wanted to make a website, but I really didn't need it because my business was done on the phone. Uh, was done on the phone, was done via email because most of my clients were B2B clients. Would have helped to have uh, a website, yes. Probably WordPress uh, website would be enough because I didn't need to impress consumers. Whereas if you go to consumer market, of course, marketing becomes everything. But at that point, it's before investing in marketing, you need to do a very simple calculation. The calculation being the dollars that I put on the table to acquire a client are then <coughs> repaid by the client or not. So called cost of conversion. Like if I spend twenty dollars to gain a client and then the client orders only ten dollars, it goes without saying that it was a bit of a bad business decision. Um so now now this is it for the evening. I wish you a nice start of the week and I thank whoever tuned in for this episode uh, Sunday episodes are always going to be a little bit longer and as usual feel free to reach out if you want more details on 
what I was talking about and what I was rambling on, please feel free to reach out. And thank you. And wish you a good night.